this is Carrie. Welcome to to two pastors t- t- taking a walk in and doing a podcast. Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. Yes. So do we want to um, So this was the part where you were going to be smooth and ask me to go first? No, no, no. I was going (laughs) to confess the lie that we did not. We didn't walk walk or run. We did nothing. Summer just uh, messes with our schedule in a lot of ways. Let's blame the schedule for not walking or running. Mm -hmm. Let's do. Let's Mm -hmm. do that. So what's astonishing you? Um, I just am... So once again, coming back to the discipline of this question, which I think is really life-giving because it is important to always have, um, to, to not just dismiss the things that are unpleasant or disturbing from your consciousness, right? It is important to, um, listen deeply to the pain and suffering of the world and the community and allow your spirit to be troubled by it. And also it is important that we cultivate the discipline of resistance, which requires noticing just the um, sanctification of ordinary life and the places where the Holy Spirit is visible and, and calling those out because there has to be an alternative to what we're against. And so I appreciate um, the the discipline of needing to offer this question because oftentimes, you know, what we're astonished at in, in the sense of awe <laughs> and wonder, you know, you just know right away, oh, it was this or oh, it was that. And then some weeks, you know, it's really hard. Nothing comes to mind. And then you really have to interrogate your own spiritual blindness, because of course, I know and am grateful for all of the ways that I experienced the goodness of God and the indwelling of God. And so wanting to have a a deep sensitivity to the goodness and the power and the beauty of God's love as much as you do to um, calling out for justice, which I forget who says that justice is what love looks like in public, right? Yeah, so I've heard that. Um, so anyway, I, I struggled a little bit this week to think about what what is astonishing me. Um, and then I realized that I, I wrote about it actually earlier this week. Um, last, I think on Saturday, um, I had walked up to the farmer's market and I had gotten um, some summer tomatoes and summer tomatoes like homegrown tomatoes are just one of my favorite favorite things and it reminded me of just a really beloved saint member in our community um, whose name was Ralph Scarborough and Ralph died a couple years ago but one year he brought me um, a tomato he's a great gardener and he brought me a tomato and I thanked him because I was so grateful because we hadn't had any yet and he said no I want you to understand this is the first tomato from my garden and I was just so touched by that and I really 
was like, oh my goodness, you, I mean, this is a problematic metaphor, but just go with me here. I'm like, you brought me the first fruits of your garden. Like I am not worthy or whatever, but it just was such a, um, gosh, it was just such a beautiful gift and, um, meant so much just, um, the way that he rolled through life, which was, um, cultivating friendships and goodness and, Mm. and giving, giving the first portion to the people in his life. And, you know, he was one of the people who, um, in this, you know, he was just one of the people that when the church went through this really difficult, difficult time of change, which required so much sacrifice from the members of the congregation, you know, he was one of the folks who chose to stay and to like walk into the unknown and um, his presence and the gift of that was just so, so precious to me anyway. So I just was eating this tomato and then all of a sudden just thought of Ralph and thought of that gift. And actually at the time he gave it to me, I was so moved that I took a picture of it. And so it's actually um, in a little frame in my office. And um, I just am astonished of, of that, that just the power of, um, how we, how we give and, and generosity and the way that it's not, um, you know, I think that the culture defines the value of a gift in a really prosaic way. Um, and you know, is very limited about who has gifts to offer and who doesn't. And then of course the gospel teaches us to have the eyes of Christ and to notice that, um, the, the two coins offered by the widow are, are really an unspeakably holy and uncomfortably holy gift that we're not worthy that the, that the church, the institution that God is worthy, but the church and the institution and all of us who have our hands on it are just, you know, I just think sometimes in the, in the pressure and stress and anxiety that any pastor or church leader walks with inevitably um, it is just sometimes easy to overlook just how unspeakably sacred it is that people bring their gifts to God, to this community that we are called to serve and lead and just how, um, how gorgeous that is and how, what a long lasting effect it has anyway. So I just was thinking about that and I don't really have any words, any deep words, except that, I mean, I guess, I guess <laughs> as is the case, I don't have any words. I don't but have any here words, are some words, but <laughs> I mean, it's just nice to think that some of the gifts we give will have a meaning beyond what we are aware of and will have, and will last and have an impact beyond what they could have imagined. Because Ralph was just a really loving man, but I know that he wasn't thinking that he was going to be giving me a gift that would continue to nourish me just a decade later. And I don't think I'll ever um, not think about that when I read about first fruits or when I have the first tomato of the season. And I'm not sure what it means to me other than it's just beautiful and good. And I guess... I guess maybe that's the bottom line is that sometimes the places where we astonish are astonished at the goodness of God actually 
have been incarnate in the people around us, have been embodied in the people around us. And that's just a really, a really cool thing, um, an encouraging thing um, that, that God infuses our gifts and um, makes them more than they are and have a significance beyond what we intend or imagine. And so I'm, I just am always want to um, make space to have a posture of awe at the privilege it is to do this work and to love and be loved by people um, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's, it's incredible. So I'm grateful. In every congregation I've served, there have been gardeners. And every summer, I notice their excitement to give. Yeah. From their garden. Mm -hmm. I get this sense that they have, and I am not a gardener, but I get a sense from them that they have labored, they have toiled, and that they have this astonishment within them that even though they did this work, that it was God that produced the fruit. Yeah. And so to them, th th there's this amazing produce and and there's something within them that just delights in giving it away. Yeah. I, I, I've had gardeners bring boxes and boxes of vegetables and uh, just lay them out and say, everyone, take what you want um, and just give like 70% of what they grow away to the church. And it's really, it's yeah. really beautiful. Well, and it is really interesting to think about gardening as, um, as a spiritual metaphor right mm -hmm. that in a way we ought to i don't garden either in fact i have an amazing and disturbing capacity to kill cactuses <laughs> cacti like it, wow. it takes wow. it takes a lot of <laughs> wow a, a lot of commitment to screw up a cactus but i just cannot keep them alive like i i, I overwater like i don't even understand i but we're surrounded by like look around you there are dead cacti right behind you on that <laughs> anyway <laughs> So, but I do think this idea, I mean, I guess it is just like the practice of cultivating astonishment that the reality is like every day we eat light. I mean, that is what ultimately all food is. Um, and, and so when you garden, as opposed to going to a store, what you are doing are these things that shouldn't produce what it was. I mean, to take a seed that looks dead and bury it. And then somehow what comes up is nourishment. That is a miracle. And I, I think it's often like ministry, one that the stress and the anxiety and the work and the familiarity familiarity can blind you to. So I think, and so gardeners though see that and then they're so excited to share this thing that has been produced through them, but not by them, and like this mystery the of, of preaching. Right? And we do this work, right. we labor, we work. And then when it's time to speak to God's people, there is this radical, deep astonishment. It's like, okay, I've worked on this, but the Holy Spirit has breathed right. a life into it. That's beyond me. And I'm so excited to share it with you. Or that I, I sort of came to meet the Lord over these words on the page and somehow had received the spiritual revelation that I am mm -hmm. so excited to share and so honored that it got to come through my labor. And I think really 
it should be that way with all of us when we practice our faith. That it is to... God's will that everyone's vocation be that. Mm-hmm. And and that our walk with Jesus, we cultivate in a way like we cultivate, would not that we would know, but a garden, like with a, with a level of commitment and consistency that allows things to happen that then delight and surprises and can be shared. And I, I think, so not just preachers and not just pastors, but all of us who are following Jesus to recognize that it's, it's a, it is both deeply personal and individual and intrinsically communal. So whatever is produced through us, a, a, the deepest part of the joy, the completion of the joy, like Paul says, make my joy complete, yes. is in sharing it with, the people around you. And that sort of, we were talking earlier today about, could we do a sermon series on like paradoxes of faith? And like one of them I think would be just how personal and communal this, this walk with Jesus is. And that those two things, it's primarily both things and that they shouldn't both be able to be true, but they, but they are. Um, so I, anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful. I'm astonished for that. And I'm astonished that, that gift long ago sort of was a touchstone for me in the week of recovering like, oh gosh, all of this is such a gift and none of it is dependent on my excellence as a practitioner, um, that it really is this deeply vulnerable partnership with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit does not work for us, in fact. (laughs) So there comes a time where you just have to sort of say, I did my best or sometimes not even my best and ultimately God will show up and glorify God's self in some way. And I'm, I trust the mystery of that goodness. So anyway, what are you astonished at this week? Well, uh, today is July 5th, the day after uh, July 4th. (laughs) makes sense. Uh, the day after uh, this country celebrated Independence Day. And uh, on July 5th, let's see, 1852, July 5th, 1852, um, Frederick Douglass gave his um, well-known what is July 4th to the slave speech. And for the past few years, I've listened to uh, pieces, portions of that speech on July 4th or July 5th. Um, and I started listening to the whole speech recently, and it is it is amazing in that it is both a very sharp critique of American hypocrisy at a time when um, Africans were slaves in this country, this black man was asked to give a speech (laughs) um, on July 5th about Independence Day. Uh, He was invited to speak by um, the women's anti-slavery group in New York. And he begins the speech by saying, is is this some cruel joke that you would ask me to speak on independence in this country? But the speech, um, he, he both criticizes the hypocrisy of 
celebrating independence while Africans are enslaved. And he holds out hope that if the country can, one, see its hypocrisy, two, begin to live up to its highest ideals, then that is a beautiful, powerful, God-blessed thing. And when you listen to the whole speech, and I love to hear um, an actor um, um, recite his words, um, because when you read uh, transcripts from the 1800s, they will quote parts of the speech and then put in um, brackets, like laughter or some mm -hmm. response to the crowd. And often today, when you hear people, when you when you sit in a crowd in which someone is reciting the words of Frederick Douglass, there's just quiet. There's not yeah. the same kind of response. And so, um, um, I, I just imagine uh, that had a, a, a both a convicting and inspiring effect on the hearers. And for me, uh, what is astonishing me is that once again on the 4th of July, on July 5th, I'm in a place of like deep, and, and I, I mean this in a respectful and holy and vulnerable way. It puts me in a place of deep ambivalence about the country because what July 4th brings me to personally and especially the Frederick Douglass, Douglass speech is that I'm forced to ask, unless I shut down my brain and shut down my heart, I have to ask as an African-American, is the country just for them or is it for all of us? Mm -hmm. I have to ask that question. And if I'm being honest, I, I just wrestle. On the one hand, my ancestors built so much of this nation shed blood, um, lost lives in wars, served in every area of our government. And so, yes, this is our country. And at the same time, there are, I, I have to acknowledge there's so many systems, um, so many ways of thinking that say, nope, this is not yours. Yeah, I mean, what I think as a white American follower of Jesus is that white Americans really need to, or I think it would be life-giving for everyone, including white Americans, for us to press through the initial discomfort um, of really considering this part of our history, because I, I know um, that sort of the the assumptions and the and the work and the lines in white culture, especially when white people are alone, is like, yeah, it was unfortunate, but it had to be, right? And so it was unfortunate. It was too bad for those people back then. But all of us, black and white, and and everyone else, are better off now because there were all of those years of. Um, slavery and Jim Crow and and the and the often un sometimes sometimes articulated but often unarticulated um, narrative is the country couldn't be the amazing global superpower it is if it had not had the 
air quote, benefits of all of the unpaid labor of, of those who were enslaved. And if it hadn't, um, you know, if people hadn't done what was, quote, necessary in, quote, I've got a lot of quotes in this thing, <laughs> but in, in terms of the disenfranchisement, disenfranchisement and genocide of Native Americans. Um, and I think that as white people, we really, there, there's just a deep comfort in that thinking because it allows you to both sort of check the box of obviously those things were horrible, but also um, feel like ultimately they were for the benefit of everyone who still happens to be alive. Um, and, and to really say it's not just for my benefit as a white person, but also um, people, who, you know, black people and indigenous people, they're all better off today because their ancestors mm -hmm. gave this labor to the union, gave air quotes, <laughs> so many air quotes. Um, and I think what we as white people need to do, I really do think this, is to um, interrogate that, mm -hmm. um, to push back. Like it's, it's, it is horrible to expose yourself to the magnitude of the evil and suffering that was perpetrated against black and indigenous people in this country. I mean, if you think of the Holocaust lasting for what, four years, five mm -hmm. years, and then to recognize that there was 400 plus years of that kind of mm -hmm. enforced slavery. And we want to say all kinds of things about how it was different or what I mean friends it, it really it, it's a difference without a distinction in terms of the quality of life of the people who were caught up in those systems um, but if you press past all of the sort of simple lines that allow you to just kind of not sit with the pain of that then I, I think that for all of us but white people can can join in the communal project of challenging that narrative that we're all better off now because that happened and to really say really are we because where might we be as a nation had we partnered with indigenous people and learned some of the deep and holy truths of indigenous culture like having limits to use of natural resources and being faithful, not just to neighbors, but to the earth and creation itself. And, and had we been able to learn from indigenous people, what it means to show um, mercy and hospitality and generosity towards strangers who are unlike you. And what would it have been like if at the time of the American Revolution, after the death of Crispus Atticus, if the founders of this country had said, wait, what we want from the British crown, we recognize what is due to us. Like we won't, we're not content with our own liberation. And we were not, we don't, we're not seeking liberation from the crown in order to perpetuate this system. Like, can we imagine something radically new which honestly like your mouths are speaking but I mean and I I guess like I can identify with this as as a as a pastor that sometimes you preach a sermon and then later on in the week you're dealing with something in your personal sphere and you're like oh gosh I am literally 
literally doing the thing that I quite sincerely and authentically preached against. Happens all the time. All the time. And so this idea that like, oh, those men were hypocrites or they're, I mean, the reality is they were human. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, um, you know, all truth belongs to God. And so I think that what is articulated in the Declaration of Independence and in the Constitution and some of those foundational documents is true. And so I think that it is or was intended to be of of the Lord. And yet people get caught in that we can only imagine what we already know. And so there was just no way to think about creating something new without it having real deep mirroring of what you had known before. And so I, I just think it would be really interesting for all of us as Americans to think, you know, what if we at this point in 2022 were mourning something that happened, whatever, 300 years ago. And then we had 300 years of working together as um, citizens who, where there really was equality and liberty and justice for all. And we had had all this time to, um, to to reconcile and have real reconciliation with one another and and what as as much as we call this country a global superpower in some ways that are problematic i mean there are ways that we have institutions that have not equally distributed benefits to all citizens but you know i am happy very happy to live in a country that has generally with some egregious exceptions, safe water. And generally you do not walk out in the streets as a woman and get attacked by a gang of youth. And I mean, you know, like I, and so I'm grateful for that, but, but how much more might all of our communal quality of life be had 300 years ago, Americans said, wait, this, this isn't who we want to be. And to say as Americans, white Americans, like it's not too late that I, want to raise my daughters so that they can raise raise their children to say, Hey, we are, we can honor the ways that, um, you know, our, your grandmother pushed back imperfectly, (laughs) but pushed back on some of these things and started to walk forward into a future that was unknown. Because I think a lot like people, I, I hear black thought leaders, talk about just being really done with white people and um and I just grieve that because you know some people white people will deflect and be like well that's racist blah 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 and I'm like no I I understand why just the pain of that and and the anger there that is I mean who am I to say that that's not it doesn't matter what I think (laughs) it's true and it grieves me. And, um, I, I, what, how wonderful would it be if we were telling a different story now? And, and honestly, you know, there are countries with a lot of homogeny who seem to superficially be enjoying a, a deeper level of unity. Um, but, but the reality is, I mean, you think about a country like Germany where, ethnically in terms of what we call white it was all the same but they're still like othering is just the enemy's oldest trick and so to be a nation where people come together you know however it happened they get to a point where we recognize 
that it is our differences that actually um, complete and um, and and enrich our common life together to actually begin to figure out what does that look like to begin to figure out that when we talk about equity and inclusion, that's not like the woke liberal mob running amok. That's legitimately just in our everybody's self-interest to say we all know different things and we all have different vision and we all have um, a different um, knowledge base of what problems are and how they can be fixed. And that the reality is when my neighbor flourishes, I flourish. Like there is a way that we don't have to um, we don't have to um, push someone down to be able to experience abundant life, which is obviously the vision of the kingdom. And so that's, you know, my hope is that we would challenge that articulated and often unarticulated statement of like, well, it was just the way it was back then and nobody knew any better and nobody could have done any better. So let's just get over it and to say like, actually, it it didn't ev- it did never have to be this way, and we've always had models of something different. And literally, I, again, like I know the indigenous communities in the United States were multifaceted and varied, right? I understand that, but there were models of the kind of beloved community, imperfect, like right here. But instead of learning from them, people just recreate their own oppression. Like that's kind of the deep tragedy of of um violence so yes when the israelites left egypt one of the things that they had to do was unlearn egypt lest they create an egypt-like system in the promised land mm-hmm. and it's so easy to uh, recreate the pr- the oppression that um has diminished you well and i just think it is so human um and a product of fallen creation that that we see the other as a threat and that you know from from Cain looking at Abel's gift and seeing Abel's gift as somehow a threat to his relationship with God I mean just just the fundamental question of will we see someone else's humanity and life as a threat to ours or will we recognize that we each of us um, can walk especially as Christians have an ability to walk in the power of the spirit so that the spirit can sanctify our lives as, as they are now, especially because we believe that our um, embodied life is not the only life we have, which for me, I can't move past. I can't quote evolve past this understanding of eternal life after death because it, it, to me, that's what gives one the courage to both deeply, deeply engage with the world here and now and to have a driving need other than to protect my physical life at all time, right? Yes. Like that's, um, yes. I think it's just intrinsic to the work of liberation. For me, it is. And I'm not also claiming to be any great shakes at the work of well, liberation. <laughs> so. Well, here's another thing that comes to my mind. Um, that I love uh, among the many things about Frederick Douglass. Uh, The first group of abolitionists, white abolitionists that he was working with, thought the Constitution was a pro-slavery document. And it was Douglass who took the position 
that the Constitution was not a pro-slavery document, that the country could adjust, that the country could change, that the country could become better. And he, he used quite a bit of sarcasm and ridicule to, you know, to, to, to communicate that. Um, and I still hold out hope but when I hear uh, black thought leaders say, you know, we're done with white people, what, what I hear is we are tired of white people inviting us into white spaces to conform to white spaces with this promise of things being better, mm -hmm. only to find that in times of crisis intention, that it's not. Mm -hmm. And so I, I sense a kind of pulling back to say that our door is open. We want you to come this way instead of all the, instead of us always going that way uh, with, with this hope of change. That, that's, that's how I hear that. And uh, what I, another thing I'm sensing uh, in, in these times is a renewed, um, value in historically black institutions, mm -hmm. um, uh, colleges, churches, not to be better than, but spaces that are not only safe, but formative, and spaces that provide a platform to help folks advance even if there's little change in the country. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and I think, I mean, that's what's interesting when I hear you say this idea of, like, come, you come to us, we don't always want to come to you because I, I think what I hear and what I really honor in a lot of different spaces is a black leaders saying to white people, this is not for you, this is for us. And I think you know, whatever my emotional reaction to that might be, I, I, I think, um, okay. I mean, I don't know, I don't know why, I think a lot of white people are very offended by that. Oh, I know a lot of white people are very offended by it. Sure. Um, and I just think, well, I, it's interesting to me that you would be offended to see someone mirror back to you the, the whole history of white culture and, and in this country, which has been, this is for us, not you. And so then to be like, well, that's not fair. I mean, like if, if that is the case, you know, I would think white people could understand, um, yeah, how, how does it feel? And, and where do we think this came from? And instead of being fended to work at, you know, if this is, this is fruit of the trees we planted. And so again, that's what I mean about getting to a place where we can figure out. And I do think like local, congregations like ours that are sincerely and imperfectly really trying to be multi-ethnic in a way that's healthy and holy. That's why I think these institutions are just really important, regardless of whether or not the world ever sees them as valuable or important. But this is a place where people learn how to be human. And I think where white people learn that because something makes me uncomfortable, that doesn't make it wrong. And that if I'm really going to be friends with someone, then yeah, at some point, 
that person of a different ethnicity than me is going to share their experience of dominant American culture, which is going to be tied to whiteness, and it's going to make me uncomfortable. And I have to be able to say, well, do I want to be friends with this person or not? And what what do I want? Do I want to be comfortable? Or do I want to sort of say, yeah, I understand intellectually that this expression of culture is fallen and harmful and it has the appearance and I do think appearance of benefiting me but actually it doesn't doesn't benefit me either and that's why you know then you come into the work of dismantling these systems not as a white savior because I'm not doing anybody a favor and I'm not giving up anything what I'm saying is these structures are are built on a lie that's toxic to everyone, including me and my daughters. And so I want them to learn the truth so that we can say, this is not who any of us were created to be, um, that we're all um, fallen and susceptible to sin, but now we want to turn around and walk in a new way and we're, and we're learning how to do this. Um, and that's just not going to, we're not just going to be able to snap our fingers and make that happen. And there is going to be a long period of growth and discomfort and change, but that ultimately the fruit that that is going to produce um, is so life-giving that we would never, would never go back. Yeah. It's the hard work of sitting with the discomfort Mm -hmm. that um, I'm just not sure we're willing to do that right now as, as a country it seems that we are being invited to join a side in the culture war. And when you join a side, it's either we win or they win. There is very little true dialogue. Um, I do think you are right that the way forward is a long period of sitting with pain. And um, and I think as white people, we need to recognize that we have this expectation that everyone will honor and respect us everywhere we go, that that should be the default. And I think that we really just need to recognize what a kind of outrageous thing it is when many of us will still clutch our purses if a black man walks by us, but then we'll be offended if someone isn't immediately ready to be intimate with us or vulnerable towards us. Like just to recognize, like there's just a lot of pain. And what what might be helpful is if we could see how we have all been shaped. We've all been, if you will, discipled by a system that has misformed us mm-hmm. right and so it it makes it less personal mm-hmm. uh, doesn't totally <laughs> take that away but it makes it less personal that we we live move and have being in this environment that makes us see and understand things in a particular way and in particular ways that are just twisted and not holy yeah it's interesting i mean as you say like being willing to sit with discomfort a couple of weeks ago a, um, a leader in Charlotte work who I really admire who happens to be white reached out to me because she had seen something that I had shared on social media which I had shared uh, something written by a white man that was critical of a local leader who was black 
And, and the thing that um, had been said just really was outrageous and wrong. Um, but what this white woman said to me was, Hey, I really think you need to take that down because, um, you know, it, it is not, it's, it's not helpful when white people rush to criticize black leaders. And there's, there's just something to be said for let, if, if something needs to be said to that black leader, let it be said by another black person and let not the black community see all these white people rush to attack one of the few black leaders. I mean, there are actually a lot of black leaders in Charlotte city government right now, but I just, you know, and at first, my first reaction was like, well, I'm offended by this <laughs> thinking about like all the times I've seen her say things on social media that are critical of black leaders and blah, blah, blah. But then, you know, because I really have to say like, okay, Kate, but what, what do you really want to be for? And I really do want to be part of the work of reconciliation. I really want to be part of the work of healing. And so when someone comes to me, like, I just want my first beat to be, let me just, let me just sit with this. And also this is somebody that I don't always agree with the way they do things, but I really honor their passion and heart. And I mean, I just see them as prophetic in the sense that they make me deeply uncomfortable, <laughs> which I think the prophets did at the time, which is why they all got murdered. Um, so I, and after thinking about it for a while, I was like, you know, I, I do see how that can be really unhelpful and that if other people are saying this, do I have to be the person who says it too? And I'm not speaking for other people, black or white, but for me, I'm like, I kind of do want to be thoughtful of when I criticize thinking about, you know, am I criticizing a black leader for doing something that a lot of white leaders do that I've never said anything about, right? I mean, I just want to be aware of how that dynamic works. And I, I want to be really intentional in what I do. And, um, and so I'm grateful for that. But I also just think it's important to say when somebody, like your natural reaction, when somebody comes and says, hey, you've done this thing that is not helpful in terms of the big picture of what you say you're about, your first natural human reaction is to be defensive and be like, no, not me. How dare you? And to say like, well, maybe I'll get back to actually, I mean, because what I said at the end of the conversation, is like, I can't promise that I'll never say something critical of a black person in leadership, but I appreciate you telling me how this is perceived in some parts of the black community. And I want to know that so that I, I'm, I'm just aware because the more aware I am, the more intentional I can be about what my impact is going to be. So anyway, I just think like that willingness to sit with the discomfort and also when someone comes and says like, Hey, this is unhelpful or this is counterproductive to just let, to pre-decide <laughs> that my first reaction is going to be, you know, let me sit with this for a while and think about it. Doesn't mean I'm intrinsically going to agree with everything that everyone says to me, everything critical everyone says to me, but it will mean that I can make sure that my first reaction isn't just my ego protecting itself and that I can really inquire of the Lord and say, you know, what of this is, is growing, growing me and what do I need to just let go of? Yeah. And for me, the work in this season is, um, to, uh, see the rise of hate groups, to see, uh, the, the, the political change in the country and just all of the things that are in the air in terms of, of 
racism and um, historic rights um, guaranteed. Um, the, the work I'm doing is to see all of that and going back to our earlier conversation about gardening and tomatoes and vegetables to know that the, the work that is being done is like planting seeds. It, mm -hmm. it seems very small and significant, not enough to change the tide of what seems to be happening, but to also know that um, the, the kingdom has been inaugurated by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I am a person who just um, desperately, joyfully uh, holds on to that, that great vision of uh, the book of Revelation of people of every tribe, language, mm -hmm. and nation around the throne of the Lamb, uh, the vision of new creation uh, where the whole earth is in harmony because of the glory of God and the presence of the Lamb. Um, I hold on to that, trusting that the seeds that are being planted will bear fruit, the kingdom will come in fullness. And so that that grounds me in this work and it prevents me from uh, going to a place of despair. Right. It prevents me from um, giving up. It prevents me from going to a place of deep anger. It prevents me from going to a place of um, taking up the world's weapons and say, right. okay, they have an army. We're going to get an army. They got right. guns. We're going to get guns. Nope. Right. Well, and I think also to look at some of the systems and structures and to sort of have a have an evaluation of whether or not they're likely to be reformed or redeemed and to be able to say like, yes, I, I agree. It seems unfathomable to me that these would ever become healthy. But also what I believe deeply is that that those were never how the kingdom was going to come anyway. And so to say the reality is people are shaped by their culture. Of course they are. We all know that. And each one of us is creating culture and that what, you know, the chain, the kingdom of God comes from the ground up and, and we're on the ground. And so to be able to say, I don't need, I mean, it's fine, whatever people are called to do in the world, but I don't need to have a platform. I don't need to have power and authority as the world labels power and authority in order to know that the, our faithfulness, um, has resonance in the kingdom. And I think that is the challenge is that people are fighting over some of these institutions and systems. And, and because we're not very well um, grounded in the culture of the gospel, but more grounded in the culture of the world, we think like, oh gosh, you know, well, what does happen if we don't get Congress or if we don't get the presidency, or if we don't get the school board and to be able to say, I'm not indifferent at all to wanting to tell the truth about what love and faithfulness and justice looks like in those areas, but also to say that we have, we all have a sphere of influence that we get to use for kingdom values. And, you know, this, the heart of our story is we're sitting here because one man who looked like literally nobody who, who scripture says is kind of ugly, yeah. walked around with 12 randos. And here we are 2000 plus years later to say that the spirit of God shows up and sanctifies people and regions and communities that the world thinks are worthless garbage until the switch flips 
and thinks that they're a threat that must be exterminated. And what we know is that um, the Holy Spirit cannot be deterred by human power. And if we don't believe that, then then we have not yet fully understood the power and beauty of grace and the as an alternative. Of scripture from mm-hmm. from the Old Testament to the New Testament. I was reading in the Psalms this morning where the psalmist is, you know, crying out to God, why do the wicked prosper prosper and what's going on and then the psalmist remembers oh yes you are the god enthroned in heaven you see all you know all you 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 are sovereign and Mm -hmm. then you know the psalmist recommits i'm just i'm gonna not just i'm going to follow you because i know that you are sovereign and when we have that understanding which you know at first i think we want to like censor all those parts of the bible out like all those troubling passages in Ecclesiastes that not only don't resolve cognitive dissonance, but like emphasizes like, Hey, sometimes it just feels like it's only bad things happening to good people. And what's that all about? And when we're trying to market Christianity, we're like, let's just shove those back in the closet and get rid of them. But the reality is when you're deep in this life, looking at the witness of scripture and realizing I am not you know, nothing has fallen apart. (laughs) The wheels have not come off. This has always been what it is like to be human in this fallen world. And God never lied about it. And yet there is a goodness and a deliverance and a salvation that cannot be explained or predicted. And, And I'm betting on that. And that's what gives us the power to be unmovable that even, you know, even if he slay me, I will praise him or, you know, our God will rescue us. But even if not, we're not worshiping these trash idols that you're putting in front of us, right? This idea that there is something more powerful than violence and death. And it is people who are undeterred because they're filled with the kind of power that comes from God, which does not steal, kill or destroy, but actually chooses to give and to give life. Um, and, and so that's what we're betting on. And once we understand that these structures that we're fighting over were never ours, like that was never the way, um, then, then really beautiful things happen. We really uncover the kind of power we do have in the kingdom of God. So it's a breach. I mean, it's a really extraordinary time to be alive and following Jesus. And, um, I'm, you know, I'm grateful for these communities that we have (laughs) that are foolish and desperate enough to say, you know what, let's shoot the moon and try to be the church that we believe God is calling all churches to be. And we might, we might thrive or we might die, but either way, we're going to bear witness to what we believe in and not what we've settled for. So, well, one I know we want to move on, but uh, we want to wrap up. We got to be done. Well, one one thing that comes to mind. I hope I'm not introducing something new, but it just it makes me think about um, um, Andy Stanley. I don't know if you know his new book, uh, "Not in It to Win It." Oh no! Uh, but basically, he's just reflecting on um, the, the current politics in the country and and the church, <laughs> and um, basically, it's not COVID. <laughs> Are you sure that's not COVID? That's coffee going down the wrong way. Sorry. Sorry. And and Stanley is reflecting on politics in the church and saying, you know, 
in, in um, I think it was CNN interview, he said, we've almost forgotten how to be Christian. Mm-hmm. That we think it is about winning the culture war when Jesus calls us to walk another way. And I'm really grateful for voices like his. I mean, he could retreat within the walls of his mega church and mm-hmm. not stand out and enjoy a very comfortable life. And to say something as simple as the church is not in it to win the culture war, he has received so much criticism for sure. something that I think is just very true. Just gospel all, 101. All Christians should say amen. Right. right. Or not, because the reality is it's a narrow way. It is the so narrow way. Yes. The, the call to follow Jesus is to pick up your cross and die to self. And that is not marketable. And the only way we've been able to market Jesus is by making to say like, well, it sounds bad, but let me tell you why it's good. No, it sounds bad because it is... Um, death to all the things that the fallen world has taught us where life is. And that's why the last are first and the first will last. And that's why it's so hard for the rich to enter into the kingdom of heaven because the systems, the fallen systems that are here are giving them an illusion of life that is very pleasant until it's not. Until it's not. Where when you are on the bottom, when you are a loser, when you have no hope, then when someone comes and offers you an alternative, you would just, you're looking up at the seedy underbelly of this empire that's, that's supposed to be so glorious and peaceful. And you know, for a fact, this is not glorious or peaceful. So maybe, maybe something else that looks, something that looks good is bad. So maybe something that looks bad is good. This too will preach. Well, and I, I really, um, I really appreciate that. And I really, um, appreciate Andy Stanley for saying it because, you know, I've been thinking a lot about the, you know, the Supreme court case that was recently decided for, the football coach who wanted his right to pray on the 50 yard line at, at games. And I just think like, can we just have a, some, I mean, it's astonishing to me how many Christians are celebrating that ruling when I think, okay, so I, literally Jesus says, when you, you pray, pray, do not, do not pray display. as the hypocrites do in public. For I tell you, they have their reward. But go to your prayer closet and then your father who sees what you do in secret will reward you in secret. So I'm like, it's just so ironic to me that that our own, I mean, when Andy Stanley says we've forgotten how to be Christian, like I just, when you are saying like, oh, this is such a victory for me, I'm like, first of all, what you're telling me is you literally do not understand prayer. And all these people who are saying like, well, every time something tragic happens, people say, well, it's because we've taken God out of public schools. I'm going to be like, first of all, what God are you talking about? Because if you're talking about the God of Judeo-Christian scriptures, then there it's it is theologically impossible to take god out of anywhere and it's a laughable thing to say you've taken god like that is a ridiculous thing to say and second of all when you say you're not allowed to pray in schools or wherever i'm like do you understand that prayer even if you wanted to outlaw prayer, it is impossible to outlaw prayer because prayer is something that happens internally between you and god so it, it is it is metaphysically impossible to prevent someone from praying. And so when you say my rights are being trampled because I'm not allowed to pray, what you're telling me is you actually don't pray. Mm-hmm. 
because you think prayer is something about talking out loud where other people hear you. And that is not what prayer is. And you don't have to take stupid Kate Murphy's word for it. Jesus said it. So particularly ironic if you say, I need the right to pray to Jesus out loud when Jesus says, whatever you do, don't pray like those fools. I mean, it's astonishing to me how it's right there, but you have some of the most prominent Christian voices lining well, up behind we that. have a biblical example of an attempt to outlaw prayer um, when Israel was in Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, um, prompted by some of his advisors, said, you got to outlaw that no one can pray to any God except for you. And Daniel keeps his practice. He, he, he's at home, right, behind closed doors. I think maybe the windows are open and someone sees him. And what do they do? They arrest him. They put him in the lion's den. And yeah. even that doesn't work. Well, I mean, this is what I think is problematic, though, because I think, like, that coach would probably take that exact story and say, see, I'm Daniel, and the culture is Nebuchadnezzar. And I. this is what I'm saying, like, that is not no, – no one is telling anyone that they can't practice their personal faith. No one is saying that. And I also just think it's crazy for me – and just makes me realize how much people do not understand Christianity as a spiritual movement instead of a power movement. I mean, this idea that you can force someone to pray or that, that we're going to pass laws that will force someone to follow the values of whatever the most person, the person in charge believes are Christian values. It's just, I mean, if Jesus well, wanted to force people to be part of a Christian nation, he would have done that when he walked on this earth. If I mean, like the idea that Jesus had absolutely all the power to create a kingdom wherein, you know, belonging required belief, and Jesus refused to threaten or coerce or overpower people into following. It was always an invitation, and people were always free to walk away. And it's so interesting to me that so many Christians want to shortcut the work of discipling by making it illegal to not follow Jesus, ost ostensibly. Yes. So um, have you heard the term dominion theology? No. Dominion theology <laughs> has been around for a couple of decades, and it is this. Dominion theology teaches that there are seven mountains of culture, government, entertainment, um, I think maybe sports, um, I can't, economics, seven mountains of culture. And Dominion Theology says that before the kingdom of God comes in fullness, the church must take over all of those seven mountains, right? So now if you put on that mindset, you can understand uh, so much of the current work of many churches right. to be politically, economically, culturally uh, powerful and dominant. Yeah. I mean, it just makes you realize how good the devil is at his job, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, and just how what Jesus is talking about when he says a lot of people are going to come in my name and say, I, you know, I worked miracles for you and I did all these things. And Jesus will say, I didn't know you. And I think like when I was coming up, um, as a sort of homeless Christian, as an adolescent, and looking for people to tell me that I, I counted that my faith, you know, that I was a real, <laughs> a real Christian, um, 
you know, a, a lot, I heard that verse and it sounded just so, and it was preached to me as like, well, you might think you're following Jesus, but you don't know. And Jesus might not be, you know, accepting your following and you're not praying right. Or you didn't get baptized in the right way. Or, you know, it just felt so threatening. And now it just feels like, and I, I, I grieve, I grieve saying this, but I just look around and I'm like, oh gosh, like all of these people are talking about Jesus in ways that as I read scripture are just anti-Christ completely. And I just think it's amazing to me to look at the way that Jesus walked around on this earth and then to think that you can compel someone to follow Jesus. You, you, I mean, just Jesus didn't do that. And the reality is we can love someone into the kingdom of God, but you can't argue them into the kingdom of God. And you certainly can't force them or like colonize them into the kingdom. And that just, you know, again, we just think, well, this is efficient. So let's, (laughs) let's do this. And it's for everyone's good. And we can even convince ourselves that we're being somehow, um, generous or other seeking when in reality we're just consolidating our own political power um, and insulating ourselves against the kind of real vulnerability of trying to be in relationship with people where there's mutuality and trying to engage people um, and serve them without it being transactional and without any guarantee that people, you know, offering what is most precious to us, to folks who have the freedom to say no, which is what Jesus did. But we're not interested in that kind of foolishness. We're just going to, you know, put on some shields and grab some swords and say, follow the Prince of Peace or or else, mm-hmm. um, which it was ever thus, right? Um, well, we should stop talking, right? Yes. See, you did it. You started a whole new extra thread. Thank y'all for listening to us this week. Um, if you want to find out more about what God is doing at Derida Presbyterian Church, you want to go to D-E-R-I-T-A Pres, P-R-E-S dot org, their website. You can um, listen to Yolanda's back catalog of messages on the Derida Church podcast, which is on Podbeam or wherever you get your no, not wherever you get your podcasts. Only on Podbeam. Sorry, I'm on the groove. You can worship with them at 11 a.m. or check out their YouTube channel. And if you want to find out uh, what God is doing at God's Church, The Grove, you can go to our website, thegrovecharlotte.org. You can check out our pad- podcast, The Grove Church Podcast, which is wherever, wherever. you wherever you get your podcasts. Um, or our YouTube channel, look for The Green Tree, or come and worship with us at 10 I'd say you could come and worship with us and then go worship with Yolanda, but that would be a lie because we're never done by 11 as members of my family gleefully point out to me every, not gleefully, they're not gleeful about it, ruefully point out every Sunday. Anyway, thanks for listening to us and we will talk to you next week.